0: Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. hello welcome to today's podcast if you are a dog trainer a dog walker or a daycare owner who wants to help more dogs and make more money with your amazing dog training skills then you should join me in attending dom hodgson's next pet business boot camp success summit impact 2019 which is happening on april the 5th in sunderland I was a member of Dom's Pet Business Inner Circle and in 2017 I attended his inaugural Pet Business Boot Camp so I can state without question that his marketing methods are effective and they will help you to make more money. By listening to Dom's advice, I personally increased my training fees by 300%. Dom has twice been a guest on this podcast and earlier this year, direct response marketing strategist Dan Kennedy called Dom Europe's number one business coach of dog trainers, professional dog walkers, and pet sitters. So if you are struggling to stand out from the ever-growing competition and you're tired of wasting time messing around on social media, then you should come to Impact 2019, where you will finally learn the proven effective marketing techniques that will help you take your pet business to the next level. Go to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com impact to grab your ticket now. And if you get your ticket soon, then you will also qualify for over £500 of bonuses. Today, I'm talking to Emma Milne. Emma is a British vet that became well-known for the television show Vets in Practice. She wrote articles for Dogs Today magazine for six years. She's a vet behind Vets Against brachiophilism. <laughs> I hope I got that right. And has wrote several books, including her most recent Picking a Pedigree, How to Choose a Healthy Puppy or Kitten. I also want to note that I've been following the controversy around pedigree health issues for a number of years now, and I felt like having seen the evidence come out myself over that time, I didn't really question Emma enough. So in a, in an attempt to rectify that, for anyone that's kind of sitting on the fence or finds Emma's position hard to believe, I asked Emma for some good sources of information that you guys can check out. So I included that in the show notes, which you can find at nickbenger.com Emma hyphen Milne. So let's get into it. So maybe a good place to start would be your new book, Picking a Pedigree. So yeah. if we start out, um, if I'm coming to you as a blank slate, I want to choose a dog. What would be the first step?
1: Um, first and foremost, I, I, like many vets, would um, please ask people to go and look in adoption centres. I know everyone, rescue dogs, I try and stop using the word rescue dogs, Adopted dogs that need, are there for adoption – I think loads of people think, oh, there's not going to be anything I need or want. But if you just spend one afternoon going to have a look, you've got nothing to lose, no obligation. And, of course, there's loads of – if people are fixed on a breed, there's loads of, of you know, breed-specific adoption as well. Um, but I think fundamentally for me is trying to pick – breed of dog or a mongrel particularly, Uh, I'd prefer mongrel, but something that's dog-shaped, I think we've got so used to very quirky breeds and the breeds have become more and more extreme in their shape, so everyone's aware of the problems with bulldogs, hopefully at the moment, and pugs and things, but you know, other popular breeds at the moment, things like Dachshunds, Bassets, the Sharpays with all the skin wrinkles, people seem to these days like really quirky-looking animals, and those types of very unnatural body shapes often come with a lot of disease and suffering so for me it's about picking a medium-sized medium-haired doggy type of dog um, and accept that you know hopefully if people are breeding for temperament above everything else then whatever breed or crossbreed you get you should end up with something that's a lovely companion.
0: Yeah, well, we'll definitely get to all of the kind of health issues and the pedigree stuff and all of that. I I guess I was wondering, um, as you said yourself, you know, when you start looking online for for dogs, there are just hundreds and hundreds of different breeds. A lot of them Mm. people just have never heard of. So how I know mongrels are definitely in contention as well. Um, but even with mongrels they 're usually a mix of something can 't they so yeah, how do you how, how do you decide you know what type of dog to go for
1: I think one of the really important things and something we see um, in practice all the time is people picking inappropriate breeds if you leave all the health problems aside. Um, people make snap decisions about breeds of dogs, So particularly things like everyone loves like Labradors and Retrieves and things. They're, they've got a reputation for being a good family dog. But they need loads and loads of exercise. Um, I wrote a series of kids' books, and the kids have to do a trial month of whatever pet they want to have by pretending to be a pet owner for a month beforehand, and they have all these different tasks to do. But in the dog book, it says that whatever the weather... For a month before, you go out and you walk at least half an hour twice a day, every single day for a month. And parents can make the kids do it. And it's really hard to do. But there are the PDSA produce their poor report every year, which is shocking reading usually. And there's millions of dogs that never get let off their lead and, and thousands and thousands that never get walked. So I think people need to be really careful about picking a breed that is appropriate for their family situation.
0: It's so funny that you mentioned that. And I was smiling as you were talking there. I know we we didn't end up doing it on video, but um, that is you basically just described how I got my first dog because uh, (laughs) my uh, mum's partner kind of. I, I, I've been moaning for a dog for ages. You know, I really, really want a dog. I really want a dog. And then my mum's partner came home with like a stuffed toy and he was like, look, if you want a dog, you have to walk this. Stuffed toy for a few yeah. weeks, <laughs> and I did, and uh and
1: you did it. Oh, well done.
0: <laughs> so he literally just described the process I went through.
1: But it's so important, I think, because even for grown-ups our kids started badgering. Our kids are seven and nine now, and you know, a year or so ago, oh, I really want a dog. I really want a dog, and I said, okay. So we we start tomorrow. We go out for a walk twice a day for at least half an hour. And they both said, "Oh, I don't want to do that if we don't." But I will do if we get a dog. It's like, no, <laughs> you don't tell me you're going to do it. You have to actually do it. Um, and I mean, the dogs we had before, uh, there were two um, big crossbreeds. Mum was a farm collie. Dad was an unknown mutt, and you know, ended up with an unwanted litter. And we were out every, those dogs didn't care what the weather was like. We were out all the time. And it's good for us as well as the animals, but I can't bear it when you see dogs that are obviously frustrated and, um, you know, never allowed off the lead because they're too boisterous or they haven't been properly. Um, So I think people must, must, must do their research before they, the classic one, um, which was, um, twice now, I think, huskies have become really popular. Years ago, there was a film called Sled Dogs. And then recently, apparently, Game of, Th- of Thrones, which I've never seen, has, has created this entire generation of people who've said, oh, I really fancy a husky. But those dogs have got running, you know, they, they, that's what they've been bred over hundreds of years for. So unless you're like a top-class athlete that's going to run 50 kilometers a day, don't get a husky um, so it's just people thinking about what they're being honest with themselves as well about their situation
0: I think a lot of people also dismiss things that they read in the book you know like I've worked with so many miniature schnauzer owners that have kind of called me up and said you know my dog won't stop barking and it's like well <laughs> you know that was what the dog was bred for and they and then when you, if you bring that up then it's like oh I did see that but I just kind of I didn't yeah, realize. just sort of put
1: it to one side. <laughs> I know, it's funny you should say that, actually, because I never saw many schnauzers when I was in practice in England, but all of the schnauzers that I did see, they just used to come into the consulting room and bark constantly. Okay. Um, it was my resounding memory of the schnauzers that I did see and pancreatitis, obviously, but um, that's a different subject. But I think that's the thing. I'd spoke to a behaviorist when I was researching for the um, new book, because I wanted to put something in about breed characteristics, because I know everyone's desperately, you know, the breed-specific legislation and thing is all an absolute nightmare. And But breeds of dog are so different from each other, you have to accept that there's a certain genetic component to the breed you're going to get. Um, and this veterinary behaviourist I spoke to was really interesting, said that people, it's like a state agent language. So... In a lot of the breed books, they'll say things like, oh, this breed is aloof or loyal. And she said, actually, it translates as this breed is going to possibly be aggressive to everyone that comes to your house. Well, that's fine if that's what you want. But the dog isn't going to differentiate between the people you want to come to your house and people you don't. Um, And I thought that was really interesting because you do read these sort of very odd words in breed descriptions. um, And actually, they, they might mean that it's not a suitable animal.
0: Yeah, I had this conversation recently, we did an episode on puppy training with Steve Mann, and he was saying that all breed descriptions should just say friendly. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's what people need, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but then if people buy a dog thinking it's going to be friendly, and it is one of those breeds that that has perhaps a genetic ceiling for being a bit of a guard dog, then People still need to be aware of that I think for me i because i've done so much campaigning over the years about the health stuff it for me i when we have cats in our houses, ninety percent I would guess that's a figure off the top of my head ninety percent of cats in the u k are moggies they they're cat shaped they're short haired mostly and they still work they you know everything does what they would design to do um And I don't know what it is about the obsession with breed with dogs, but if we just started, if we said, right, all the dogs in the UK, we're just going to start breeding all of the healthy ones together that have got good temperaments after the age of three, so we're pretty sure that the disease status is as good as it can be for late breeding, and just start mixing them all back up again. Um, We should stop thinking about breeds and looks and actually just breed for good temperaments and good health.
0: Well, Steve's, um, Steve's point was we should be breeding dogs that are friendly. We shouldn't be breeding dogs. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah I couldn't agree more with that. Well, one thing that um, you
0: kind of mentioned there was uh, uh, Labradors. And this is a there's a big distinction for me there because I th- – let me just give you an example. So the other day I had someone call me up and they were like, you know, I'm getting a Labrador and I want to do some training. And as I spoke to them, it became apparent that they were expecting a – lazy labrador that would kind of lay in the house but they were getting a labrador from working lines uh, you know gun dogs that were out Mm. all day hunting and and there's a big difference there isn't there between the dogs that yeah i think it's massive yeah Yeah. and, and and the working line ones
1: but i think it's also with labradors are a good example actually because the show breeds the show lines are becoming so they're almost unrecognizable now. It's like the thing the difference between working cockers and pet cockers. Um, and in some ways we'd sort of encourage people to go for working lines because they're usually healthier from a point of view of their joints. Um because they're they've naturally you know, they've been selected for being sporty and healthy as a that's a gross generalization, but um but as you say i think a lot of people see labradors as this sort of docile family pet um and i think even even the family ones are still going to have you know that that need for a lot of exercise um we're seeing and- those
0: we're seeing those problems a lot as well people that um, maybe they had like a, a lazy cocker spaniel at one point, and then they heard about health issues, so they went out and got the working one. But now the working one is a million times different to their past dog. Yeah. So it's and kind sp- of. I
1: mean, we've dogs. We dog sat for a vet spaniels once, and I'd, I've always had um, crossbreeds, um, and we had these spaniels. And honestly, it was. It was unbelievable. I mean, they, they weren't puppies. They weren't misbehaving because they are puppies. At one point, I came into the kitchen, and they were both on our dining room table eating the kids' lunch. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, I think people's perception of breed needs. I, what, just if I'm uh, allowed to digress, your thing about old people hear of one thing. So my best one ever in practice was we used to have split consultations for first vaccinations and the nurse came in and she'd done her bit and she was looking at me with this weird look on her face and I was like what is it and she said oh nothing I'll just wait till you come in and on the computer it said it was a crossbreed and obviously she knew my feelings about breed disease and things and um, I went in and got talking to the lady and there's this lovely cute puppy on the table and she said to me, oh, I had a boxer before and it had terrible, terrible skin disease. So I heard that crossbreeds were better. So I got a crossbreed this time. And she'd managed to get a cross between a Sharpe and a Basset, oh,
0: which wow. two of,
1: <laughs> two breeds riddled with skin disease, some of the worst, most horrific skin disease imaginable. And I just looked at her and I said, um, has the nurse spoken to you about insurance? She said, yeah. And I said, please promise me that you will never stop paying that because – the chances are, I mean, she may have got lucky. The dog actually looked less wrinkly than a Sharpe and, and a bit longer-legged than a Basset, so maybe she got lucky. But
0: Well, that is one of the um, things to consider with the crossbreeds as well, is just because yeah, it's a crossbreed doesn't guarantee health.
1: That's the thing. And there's one of the chapters in the new book is Mutz Mongrels and designer crossbreeds because I think when when I was a kid, I'm 47 now, when I was little, we got our dogs from the. We got a list of um, unwanted dogs from the RSPCA, and we went and picked a crossbreed, and we had it for 16 years. Um, but then they were what we used to call Heinz 57s, and I used that phrase to someone recently, and they'd never heard of it. But it, they were the dogs that where you would look at them and you go, "Well, I, I haven't really got any idea what it is." Whereas now people have had these designer crossbreeds and the Labradoodles and the puggles or all all these manner of things and they're not when people hear vets say crossbreeds are healthier we don't mean those crossbreeds we mean proper actual you know dogs with hybrid vigor and proper mongrels um well that's an interesting
0: that's an interesting digression there because obviously a lot of people are going to to think that naturally that you know the designer crossbreeds a crossbreed and and thus they should be more healthy So Mm. what separates them from the mongrels?
1: Well, the problem is, so I'll give you an example. When Labradoodles became really popular, which were the first real designer crossbreeds, I had a client with a Labradoodle, and it was very healthy. Um, But equally, my husband, who's also a vet, had a client with a Labradoodle that they ended up euthanizing at the age of six months because of intractable skin disease. And the problem is that as soon as you take, so many of our breeds have got inherited or conformational disease now, so disease problems with the shape of their body, but if you take two unhealthy breeds and cross them together, you might get lucky and and avoid both those diseases. But you could end up with a dog that's got hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, and skin disease. Do you know what I mean? So you, it, it's such a lottery. And peop- genetics is really difficult for everyone to understand. But if you, natural selection, so when part of the problem, it gets really complicated because part of the problem is that in the UK we're so good at neutering animals, we don't end up with loads of mongrelly strays. Um, so if you want to find, you know, we've now got all these problems with people importing dogs from Romania, which is a. Big problem, actually, in terms of unknown behaviour and temperament, but also in terms of disease, exotic diseases coming into the UK. Um, and, and actually, I think it's becoming increasingly hard for people to find proper mongrels in the UK. Um, but they, they need to just be going to, to adoption centres and looking for something that's a medium-sized doggy-looking
0: dog, you know. Um, so are you... Are you discouraging people from getting pedigree dogs entirely?
1: Um, I know this is going to be an unpopular answer, but yes, I would. Um, The thing is, so in, in the book, I've actually made a list of about, it's about 30 breeds that I've actually gone out of the way to say, do not buy these breeds. Of course, they're not all going to be unhealthy, but if you avoid the very extreme ones, you're going to have a better chance of ending up with a healthy puppy. But that said, we've now got over 200 breeds of dog that are are recognised. So there's still, you know, a good 150 to choose from. And the the other thing is that if people, so yeah, if people really want a pedigree dog, they want to know its origins, they want to know possibly what its temperament's like or its breed characteristics, just there's so many breeds that, aren't that quirky looking you know? go for something that that doesn't have a lot of inherited problems or health problems and talk to your vet beforehand as well, I think one of the problems is that with the best will in the world, a lot of breeders or breed books, breed specific books brush the health problems under the carpet a bit Um, so if you're thinking about it, vets really struggle to get to people before they buy animals and then sadly we end up I had to put a Yorkshire Terrier to sleep at the age of about, I think it was about 14 weeks because it had a really severe congenital heart defect. And that was absolutely heartbreaking for the family and us at the surgery. No one likes to put young animals to sleep. So if I know it won't avoid everything, but Pete, if you find out, ask your vet before you get a breed about your family situation, what the breeds are like, and what their health problems are like. And there's some great websites like u 4 and the uh, Dog Breed um, Dog Breed Health, which are brilliant. That's um, a website from the Dog Breed Reform Group. Really, really good sources of health information.
0: Obviously, a lot of people will be listening to this, and this will be new to them. <clears throat> yeah. Because a lot of people will think, well, you know, I really want a pug, but Mm. as long as I go, as long as I do my research and I find a pug that's been health tested, then uh, I'll be fine.
1: I think it's one of the big issues, actually, because some of the one, the first book I wrote was in 2007, and it was about pedigree health issues. And then Pedigree Dogs Exposed came out in 2008. And everyone thought, brilliant, this is just all going to go away. Everything's going to get better. And it hasn't. If anything, it's got worse. The the explosion in popularity of French bulldogs and pugs is absolutely devastating to to people like me. And I've got a good friend who's a veterinary nurse who went to all the right... um, She ticked all the boxes for health testing, everything else, when she took on her... Um, pug and has had all of the worst problems the problem is particularly with the brachycephalics that a lot of the diseases they get are progressive so you can see a puppy and think oh well it's um, breathing fine it's running around and a year later or two years later the animals you know needing radical surgery to make its life bearable um, and it's not just the breathing problems with the brachycephalics. It's the bulging eyes, the skin folds, the spinal problems. You know, they, they are those three breeds. Just should should not should not be bred in their current form. They've become way, way, way too extreme. Um, so, so the other and world. the health testing Sorry. isn't enough at the moment. You know, the thing is, especially with, from the kennel club point of view, you've got bulldog. Um, There's a Kennel Club Bulldog breathing, uh, you know, BOAS score, Mm -hmm. which actually isn't very robust and means nothing compared to things like the Cambridge studies that are actually, you know, properly exercise tolerance testing and things. So even the ones that are health tested, actually, you still need to look deeper into which who's done the health testing and what it means because some of it isn't worth the paper it's written on. Um
0: Yeah, because which, the, the other kind of argument that will be made from people that are either pedigree breeders or, or whatever is hey, it's not the Kennel Club pedigree breeders that are doing this, it's the puppy farms.
1: Yeah, I know. We hear it all the time. But the thing is the so um the the team at Cambridge which have done the, the most sort of groundbreaking work on Boas and the prevalence of it, they've tested about a thousand um Pugs, French bulldogs, and English bulldogs now. And they're about 50% across the breed, they're slightly varied, but about 50% of them, they go from naught to grade three. So, grade three being life threatening, grade two being pretty affected by BOAS. One is almost subclinical, and naught is normal. But about 50% of all those breeds are grade two or three. So, it's shockingly bad and then people say oh but they're not the kennel club dogs and they are that study is people who are volunteering their dogs they're not won't all be casey registered but a lot of them have been casey registered show dogs and they're not clinical cases either so some people were critical of that study to start with saying oh well they're just testing dogs that are in the clinic of course they're going to be bad and they're not they're the non-clinical cases they've asked people to bring in animals that to all extents and purposes, intents and purposes the owners think are normal and they're not um, and one of the studies well I think there's been two or three now that have all shown that around 60% of owners so two-thirds of owners can't tell don't notice the signs of respiratory distress in their animals because it's considered normal in those dogs so, so you,
0: you mentioned it's the- a massive problem yeah, it is a massive problem and I also feel like there's not a lot of people talking about it and I think that from the professional angle you're there's a fear that if you talk about this then you're going to alienate clients.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really difficult. It's one of the reasons that we want to try and get to people before they buy these animals. Um a study I think it was the Kennel Club's own study showed that people spend more time picking a pair of shoes than they do which dog they want. And we've got this sort of click and buy lifestyle now where, oh, I fancy a pug, aren't they cute? They're all over social media. And you can have one within a few days. Um, So that's something that needs addressing. And one of the things I said, it's really difficult from a vet's point of view because we often don't see these animals until they've already been bought. So they come to us for a first vaccination. And if you try and broach, particularly in a short period of time in a busy practice, the possible health problems, you immediately... You know, even if you're not... We're not blaming the owners because they, they, they're just, they just don't know most of them. I live in the south of France now. I'm surrounded by French bulldogs. And um, I've got two very close friends who um, have had awful, awful problems. Um, we've dog sat for one of the dogs and it's heartbreaking. And they've both said, having spoken to me arguably and realised that they would never have them again. But I think the problem is I I had a client years ago with a Basset, and she said um, the, the dog had these terrible, terrible skin problems. And she said, but we had Bassets all the time when I was a kid, and we never had these problems. But the the trouble is that over the last – I qualified 20 years ago, 22 years ago, and over that time and the time that I was training – the, the breeds have got worse and worse it's like people are trying almost trying to see how extreme they can make them um it seems like
0: that's exactly what people are doing right because it, the, the show crazy. ring it seems to reward the most extreme version of of yeah, the animal so people just absolutely. keep breeding them more extreme
1: uh, but, but one, of, one of the
0: one of the accusations that will be made is well you know emma just doesn't like these dogs you know maybe she's had a bad experience and she's just kind of got a vendetta against them
1: mm, I know. is that and something
0: you've come across before
1: yeah loads of people say oh well you hate pedigree dogs or you hate bulldogs or or whatever and the way i try and explain this to people i know i'm not a spiritual person at all but to me i love dogs dogs are my favorite domestic animal um And I see a dog as a, say it's like this little entity that sits in different bodies that we've given them. And when I see a, well, when I look after our friend's dog, Bob, the French Bulldog, two years ago when we started looking after him, he could do a 40-minute walk if it wasn't too hot. We used to go around the lake and he'd manage. Now... This year we had him, he can get to school and back, which is about 500 metres each way, with a break in the middle while we're waiting for the kids, and it takes him 45 minutes to recover. He can't lay on his side because he can't breathe if he lays on his side. And to me, he is a lovely dog. French Bulldogs, one of the problems with French Bulldogs and Pugs is that they are lovely-natured dogs, and they, it, they're they victims of their own success um, because we should be breeding all dogs to have those lovely temperaments. And actually there's probably a part of the fact they're so good natured is that they're spending every day simply trying to survive and they they haven't got the energy or the wherewithal to actually be aggressive. Um, and that's a supposition. But the thing is, I love dogs, but I I left practice. I wanted to be a vet my whole life. And I left practice in 2008 because I was just devastated every day by seeing. I could look at a list of dogs that were coming in and know pretty much within an 80 or 90% accuracy what I was going to see them for because of their breed.
0: So that is why I
1: became a vet.
0: So obviously, um, people are going to have to buy your book to get the whole list. But what are some of the notable breeds that you suggest people avoid?
1: So I would, I will name some breeds for you, but basically people need to look out for the extremes of body shape. So anything that's got really short legs compared to its back, anything that's got huge ears or folded ears, skin folds, um, short faces for sure are an absolute no-no. So anything that's brachycephalic, so that immediately is your pugs, French bulldogs, English bulldogs, shih tzus, um, Pekinese are extremely brachycephalic, and then th- your other extremes are things like Dachshunds, Bassets, Sharpes. For the skin, are awful. Um, and then on there, I've also got things like um, the very giant breeds that have that have got incredibly short lifespans now. So Irish Wolfhounds have got an average lifespan of six years, which is about the same as a guinea pig.
0: It's just that that really strikes me as just <laughs> I mean, being bonkers. Yeah, it's, it's become mad. become culturally acceptable to breed dogs that only live to six years old.
1: Exactly. And I mean, I know it's anecdotal and we try and get away from anecdotal evidence, but I've had crossbreeds, three crossbreeds since I was 11. And the first one lived to 16 and the second two lived to 15. And the 15-year-old ones were big dogs as well. So they, we, you'd expect it, but still 15. They were, you know, 30, 32-kilo-sized dogs.
0: Um, I think that's a good point as well to make that there are there are going to be exceptions as well because I can just imagine people kind of saying, well, I know a pug that lived to 14 or what You know, yeah. the, the, there are always going to be exceptions to every, uh, exactly. every instance. Exactly. And
1: the thing with the list, I honestly, I hovered over the keyboard thinking, I am going to get a shed load of abuse for this because I, I do, I take a lot of flack. And... Um, but the thing is I'm not writing the book for breeders or the kennel club I'm writing it because I want people to have a long brilliant relationship with the next dog or cat that they buy it shouldn't be that they spend all of their time at the vets watching this crumbling animal Um,
0: and I'm sure there will be a lot of people that there always is going to be when you talk about these issues there's going to be a lot of people that are you know, get defensive about it, and understandably so. But I do think that more people need to talk about this issue because it's it's probably the biggest welfare issue going on right now. I, I really think that yeah. in kind of I don't know how many years we're going to look back at this time of and think, you know, how did no one talk out about this? Because yeah. it's, there's so much. I, I think this is the, the thing
1: breeding. exactly. And I, I've said in several talks and in the book, I feel that the breed the concept of a breed standard based on looks is a massive cause of unnecessary suffering and it sounds ridiculous it sounds over the top but it's true vets see it all the time in practice and i i have vets contacting me when i set up vets against brachycephaly well brachycephalism i wanted to get this sort of global feel of that it's not just me saying it. It's easy for people to say, oh, you well, she's just mouthing off as always. It's not just me. We've got over a 1,000 individual signatories, whole veterinary associations, WSAVA. There's 55 countries represented now. And vets specialists have contacted me and said, I, I can't bear it. I'm depressed by it. You know, this is actually causing real psychological harm to vets because – we don't want to spend everyone's like oh you make money out of it you do all the surgery blah 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 no one wants to spend their life picking up the pieces of what man has done to those animals and that's what it is
0: so the how do we thing, how do we solve this issue
1: i think one of the biggest problems is that people who know the current modern examples of the breeds so i get people saying to me oh the pugs one of the oldest um you know, one of the most ancient breeds, or Pekinese and things, they've been around for thousands of years. But when you look, I know it's a bit of a cliche, and lots of people have seen them, but I've got photos in the book of, um, for instance, old-style Persians. They look like domestic longhairs. They are unrecognisable from today's. English Bull Terriers are a really good example. They've got horrible dental problems um, because we want them to have this apparently desirable Roman nose. They never used to look like that. We've got to get away from this, this feeling that what the breeds currently look like is irreversible because they've already changed them.
0: Okay, So, so why if, can't if, we go back? If you were put in charge, then... Would you, you get rid of breed standards entirely, or would you just kind of rectify them, or what, what do we do?
1: I think current breed standards, I think there are some that are indefensible. Um, I really do, uh, from, a, from a confirmation point of view, a body shape point of view. As I said, if it was me, I know I'm a bit left of centre, but we should be prioritising temperament and health. So I don't think anything should be. Certainly, the is you shouldn't have, you shouldn't be allowed to breed from them until they're three or four. Across the board, there's so many progressive diseases like syringomyelia in Cavaliers and heart disease. Um, and there are, you know, Denmark's reduced their incidence of mitral valve disease by 70% by introducing mandatory health testing. And we're just so far behind. We've got to start prioritising health and temperament, and we need to forget about what the animals look like
0: yeah obviously it's a difficult one isn't it because you're never going to sell that <laughs> you're never going to sell that to, the, to <laughs> Well
1: the you can party. sell it to actually quite a lot of people because the thing is I think it's like a lot of these things there are when I get abuse on social media thankfully over the years I've always had more support than I've had abuse um and it's the thing that keeps me going. I went to do a thing in Sheffield and I met a lovely couple and they said, oh, I'm following you on Facebook and I hate it when I see the stuff, that, the the sort of, um, yeah, abuse that you take. But please promise us you'll keep on. And it's those kind of people that you I've meet that, to that spur well. you on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, because,
1: I mean, because they're a vocal minority and I think that's the thing. You, the people who shout the loudest, it's usually because they know they're on a back foot and the tide is turning, I
0: hope. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. But, um, I, there's obviously going to be a lot of people that the idea of just kind of getting rid of breeds entirely just, it's just, you're not going to sell them on it. Yeah. You know, so if, for example, if I talk about myself, you know, I really love Dobermans, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't own one because of the health problems that just put me yeah. off so much. And I've said that to people before. Um, so how can we have, I mean, maybe it's not possible, you tell me, but how can we have the breeds we love and have them healthy?
1: Well, I think we need to think long and hard about the the breeds because at the moment, there's one of the Northern European countries and I can't remember off the top of my head which one it is. Uh, The the pug breeders have decided that enough's enough. They're going to open the stud books. They're going to allow outcrossing. They're going to go for longer muzzle lengths, and it will make a massive difference. So the first thing that must happen is that people must accept new genetic material. We've got to outcross some of them. If we've got 50% of the three brachycephalic breeds can't actually breathe, if you take that 50% out of the breeding stock, you you know, Lord knows what you're going to end up with if you reduce the gene pool even more. So they've got to accept that we outcross. And the ones with inherited disease, Dalmatians are a classic example. I used to be a technical advisor for Hills. so I spoke to vets every day, and one of the biggest things we talk about is bladder problems um, with things like Dalmatians that have got the uric acid problems. So they – and then someone comes along, they cross Dalmatians with a pointer, and after three generations, you can't tell the difference between a Dalmatian and a Dalmatian cross – and but you can get rid of that life altering problem you know we you can we've got to outcross them. I think that's initially the thing that you've got to do um because after a, a, as i say a few generations, if you introduced perhaps breeds that don't have o c d into the labrador line um and just try and be systematic and scientific about it
0: you so know with, with the outcrossing, do you think that that has to be? kind of monitored by the kennel club and and authorised because it has to be authorised right now doesn't it I I believe yeah
1: so at the moment the, the problem is that the whole concept of pedigree means inbred so and quite a few vets over the years have said to me and it's one of the things I say in the book is if you said to the average man on the street would you like a pedigree animal or an inbred one everyone's knee jerk reaction is oh i don't want anything inbred because <laughs> yeah. people joke about people being inbred from little villages and that you know those sort of snidey remarks but pedigree breeding is inbreeding <laughs> that's the absolutely fundamental concept of it um so it, it's just trying to get people to understand what it means um Internet. introduce some fresh genes and then yeah. you can try and keep the way they look but you've got to well some of them we can't we've got to go back to longer snouts and less skin folds and those kind of things but you can fix them but people have got to accept that they've got to be crossed
0: yeah it's interesting i've because i've been interested in this issue for a couple of years now um i've joined a few facebook groups and there are some kind of people just kind of going it alone and doing their own thing with various the breeds that they love and and seeing their photos and the, the different dogs uh, as their breeding projects mm. go go on is, is really kind of lovely.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, I know we're talking about dogs today, but someone, when I was um, trying to find photos for the book, a lady who breeds old style Persians got in touch with me and she's... You know, there's lots of people that are horrified about what's happened to the breeds they loved in the 60s. I mean, and Persians are a good example. They've been changed unrecognisably in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, you know, it's very you can make really quick changes with with selective breeding, but we need to start selectively breeding the healthier dogs.
0: Um, yeah, that's quite encouraging, the, isn't it? Well, one, but one you thing... know, the,
1: there was a quote on one of the Facebook groups I saw that someone sent me that said. I, it was a French bulldog breeder, and she'd said, "I don't care what they say. I want mine as flat with as with as, as flatter face as possible." Now, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. If there's no legislation, we've got new legislation now, um, which you may well have already covered. But as of October last year, if you are, you can theoretically be prosecuted for um, breeding an animal that's likely to suffer. That was in and the UK. I, yeah,
0: for people that so, are listening abroad.
1: Yeah, sorry, in the UK. Um, and I think there are certain derogations for Scotland as well. But th- the fact is that, to my mind, you could argue that every every single litter at the moment of Pugs, French Bulldogs and English Bulldogs and Dachshunds, potentially, would be prosecutable under that law.
0: Yeah, that's a, um, a very encouraging law, but it's one of those things of, is this going to actually be...
1: Yeah, someone's got to use it.
0: Yeah, because, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, we, <laughs> so we can cross our fingers and hope that.
1: Yeah, no, I know. Mean, I, I said, well, my husband, I said to him, right, I'm going to write another book. I'm going to revisit it, totally rewrite it, because, you know, 10 years, a lot's changed. And um, I said, and after that, that's it. If I ever mention writing another book, I want you to slap me and say, don't be ridiculous. Um, but <laughs> well, this is the ch- thing. You feel like you've got to keep... Trying yeah. to change especially, people's attitudes,
0: especially when you're so passionate about this. And one of the things that I love about the people that campaign on this issue is, and you've already said this, you know, you get nothing but abuse. But that's such an indicator of of where your heart is that you're just yeah. willing to push through all of this negativity. But one thing I wanted to ask you about is the title of the book is quite interesting. How you 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 wrote uh, the title is picking a pedigree. So yeah. Are you intending to push people towards crossbreeds, or or is it about...
1: The thing uh, is, I I have thought long and hard about this, and um, I hope Michaela won't mind me saying, but I met Michaela Strachan at a pet um, show a couple of years ago when I was writing the book, and we ended up having a chat about things. She's got a adopted dog in South Africa, a little crossbreed. And she was really shocked, and lots of people are shocked when you tell them about the health problems with our dogs, um, you know, some of them. And um, she has been really supportive. She gave me a great quote for the book. She's mentioned it several times, I think, in talks that she's done. Um, and she was – when I approached her, I said, look, I'm, the book's nearly finished. Would you give me a quote for it? And she said, well, I, I don't really want to endorse a book that's about picking pedigrees because i think people should be picking crossbreeds and i said i know i know i know but i need people who are going to buy a pedigree to buy it do you know what i mean because otherwise i'm just preaching to the choir yeah
0: that makes so sense.
1: i i had to i've I'm trying to reach as wide an audience as possible. Um, and the only way I can do that is trying to reach people who are about to pick up a pug puppy
0: or. Yeah. I think um, it was um, the marketer self Seth Godin that said, uh, sell people what they want and give them what they need. Yeah. Something along those lines.
1: Well, it, I mean, it was a real battle for me as well. And also what dogs do you put on the cover? You know, because I, I've been very vocal in the campaign to try and stop using brachycephalic animals in adverts and those kind of things and the, you know, the campaign off. that Jemima does. Uh-huh. Um, and BVA have been very strong with that. Their journals, the Vet Record, and their sister journals have all stopped using adverts of brachycephalic animals. So if I then put a pug on the front of the book, I'm trying to reach people who are likely to buy a pug, but at the same time, I, I'm guilty of it. So there isn't a pug on the front cover. (laughs) Um, But the title and the cover images are so important. And and it was, yeah, a really testing time. I emailed five people, five of my friends who are as moral compasses and some vets, some nurses, um, some just sort of psychological gurus. And I was like, right, this is my quandary and got very varied responses, actually. But, um, yeah, a lot of thought went into that.
0: What's the, what's the goal behind your campaign, the Vets Against Brachycephalism? I, could, I, could, I could never say that Vets word. Against
1: Brachycephalism. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, basically, I went to a conference in Sweden in 2016 that was just on brachycephaly, and um, a German specialist called Gerhard Erktering spoke there, and he um, he's just a phenomenal speaker, and one of the leading experts in that field and i said to him afterwards do you would you say you know would you be willing to say that you you don't think these animals should be bred on welfare grounds and he said yes and i thought right well okay i'm going to get a list of specialists from all over the world and so you've got like this standing open letter in the hope that if politicians or policymakers or anyone just wanted to know the strength of feeling about it and it turned into an absolute nightmare because it's really difficult to, I mean, there's so many specialists in the world anyway and so on so on and people never answer their emails because they're too busy. And in the end, someone said to me, oh, I loved it when you um, helped with the tail docking campaign with that website you did. And then I thought, oh, hang on. So I decided to make it a website so, that all, so it's open to all vets. We've got loads of specialists on there, that said, but... All vets, vet students, um, veterinary nurses, and related professionals. So we've actually got quite a few dog trainers, behaviorists. Michaela Strachan and Chris Packham have both signed it. Um, People like Lord Black, who's a patron of International Cat Care. So, you know, it's open to lots of people. And as I say, I wanted to show how many countries we've got. We've just added Mauritius and Namibia and we're up to 55 countries now, and we've got a lot of veterinary associations. It's really just designed so that other people who are struggling with it can use the, the strength of opinion on that website
0: um, I wanted you to, know, ask you that to try what, and
1: make changes. What
0: can professional – I mean, I think the majority of people that listen to this are dog trainers, people that are interested in dog training, behaviorists. I'm sure that we have a few vets and groomers and all that kind of stuff as well. So – what can the people that listen to this podcast do about this issue?
1: Um, well, on the bracky side of things, obviously, if they want to, they can sign up to that website. It's just it's vets against brachycephalism. It's a bit long winded dot um, com, and there's a sign up page. Um, Is that just for also, vets? No. So it's, as I said, vets, nurses, students, and related professionals. So we've got behaviourists and trainers on there as well. Um, but I think one of the fundamental things is don't post pictures of extreme confirmation animals on social media and say they're cute. It's huge. We've got to stop people thinking that those animals, the quirky breeds are desirable. And also, if you've got any professionals who can get to people before they buy the animals – And I would suspect that people will talk to dog trainers before they'll talk to vets if they're thinking of getting a dog um, because the behaviour and temperament and trainability is so important. Um, and, And just be honest. Tell people that, you know, try and pick animals that are suitable for their lifestyle and their family situation and try and put people off animals that we know, breeds that are, you know, that have these huge health problems.
0: I think that's great advice and, and one thing I want to talk about as well is obviously we've covered flat-faced dogs a lot but um I mean one thing that I notice every year because I kind of watch Crufts and f- mostly for the kind of like I don't know. You're always just cringing all the way through it a lot of the time.
1: <laughs> I know. And I the, the
0: the controversy every single year are the same breeds. The one that comes up over and over again are the German shepherds, and yeah. I think a lot of people are very passionate about German shepherds. And it's a bit like yeah. what you said earlier in that you know people remember the German shepherds from years ago as having straighter backs, and it was it was kind of like a, a different dog almost. And now you see these dogs that. The back end is, is so close to the floor. Yeah. And...
1: But do you know, last year, I think it was at Crufts, I usually try and watch Best in Show just to make myself irate enough to carry on campaigning about things. Um, but I think it was last year, there was a police dog um, display team of German Shepherds that yeah, that's were. The
0: West, West Midlands dog. Uh, yeah, and they're dog brilliant.
1: Team. I love watching them. And they were on before The Best in Show. And those. they those German shepherds look like old German shepherds. They've got high rumps, they're shaped like a racehorse, um, and they're tearing around with clearly no issues about their agility and fitness and their joints. Um, and it goes back to what we said about the difference now between working lines and other lines. You can have a German shepherd that isn't crippled, um, but we need to go away from this. these modern... Freaks that we've made, um and and just start prioritising health again.
0: Yeah, it's funny that they have that on beforehand because it's such a gigantic uh, contrast. And a lot of the times, you know, people that are really into pedigree breeding and breeding dogs for the show ring are almost desperate to convince the, the
1: scathing. you
0: disguising, desperate to convince you that the the show dogs are the healthiest and yeah. they're the most fit for work even though they're the ones that aren't yeah working.
1: they're absolutely it's... not absolutely i know and we we would have it at work you know someone comes in and gives you this you know like we're really proud that they've got they've paid extra money to have a longer pedigree certificate than normal and they very often, will tell you how many cross championships the the sire and the grandparents and everything have had, and I just used to think, oh my God, there's no guarantee of anything. In fact, it's probably, you know, it, it's probably means you're going to have more problems than otherwise. But
0: and those are those are actually a lot of the times well intended tending people. You know, they think they've done their research. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I've got a dog that has this incredible pedigree, so it must yeah. be extremely healthy. So
1: exactly. th- those and are the I, sort
0: of people that need your book.
1: Well, it's quite... And it goes back to the pedigree versus inbred thing. You know, is uh, just because you have a pedigree certificate with all often all the same names on it going back through generations is no guarantee of anything except the fact that you've got an inbred dog. Um, and I am generalizing. I know there are good breeders out there, and I know there are good pedigree dogs out there, but... The problem is we've got to a point where we've got to start making people aware because vets are not cheap. And I get very upset when people try and make out that we're these money-grabbing villains, but veterinary medicine and surgery is on a par with human medicine and surgery now with the capabilities and the equipment we've got, and that costs money. Um, So if you want a pet but you don't want to pay anything for its health care, then you kind of have to accept that. But equally, we should all be striving to have pets that are the healthiest we can. You know, you wouldn't ever hear a mother when a pregnant woman, if someone says, oh, um, you know, do you want a boy or a girl? Uh, or, you know, usually the reply is, I don't mind, as long as they're healthy. That's our one overriding concern. But, you know, when you, oh, well, I don't mind, but I want its back to be a certain length and its legs to be uh, barely clearing the ground, and I want the spots to be in the right place, and the ears must be reaching down over its muzzle. It's, it's madness. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And, so and, well, yeah, and your preferences should. I mean, if you are listening to this and you love the look of flat-faced dogs, then that's one thing. But you know, you probably shouldn't breed them or or whatever yeah you know, we but have
1: don't
0: a, buy one well we have a, a little uh, pug cross chihuahua that um, we kind of rescued and you know yeah, a lot of people would acu- I'm sure a lot of people would think well Nick must hate pugs or whatever to be talking about this And obviously we love him and he's crazy and everything but uh, yeah, we wouldn't go out and and buy a, a pedigree pug for all of the reasons. Exactly, that you and
1: that's the thing. Well, there was a, an article recently in the Vet Times that Battersea are reporting these record numbers of brachycephalic animals, and this is something that's been predict- predicted for for ages because boas is progressive. The breathing problems are progressive. Over the next, so French bulldog registrations have gone from something like a 1,000 to 32,000 a year, and that's just what the KC are registering. So there are hundreds of thousands of these dogs in the UK, and they're all going to, well, 50% of them are going to start getting worse in the next three years. And that is a welfare crisis just, you know, that is going to hit any time now, and it's just starting.
0: So 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 with the crossbreeds, obviously you encouraging people to get crossbreeds, and that makes a lot of sense, but... The, the, there are issues with crossbreeds. For example, people don't tend to health test crossbreeds. A lot of the time, it's an accidental breeding, isn't it?
1: Mm. But then the true mongrels, because they're because they they've got because they're true crosses, they're true what we'd call hybrid figure dogs. You're less likely to have problems with them anyway. Um, but I, the thing is, I people love certain breeds of dog. That I, I know that's not going to change. Um, but all I would say is be aware of the extreme body shapes and the dogs that we know are riddled with genetic disease, like things like Doberman that you mentioned. I love Dobermans. My ex-boss had one. She was so sweet and lovely, but she got heart failure, which loads of them do. Um, so, you know, you can just do the research the inherited disease ones if you find a good breeder hopefully you can find a dog you know the health testing make a difference definitely um but we don't do enough of it in the uk and that's somewhere that i strongly feel the kennel club could be much 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 better on is mandatory health testing and or if you want a certain type of dog just try and perhaps find a breed that isn't quite as extreme as the one. If you like pugs, maybe, I don't know, um, go for a cross or, or go, for, you know, if you find a pug breed, of, try and find one that isn't breeding the flattest faces possible.
0: Well, that's the thing because well, um, I mean, they are extremely difficult to find, but there are people out there that are trying to kind of rectify the problems. And yeah. yes, it, you know, like I said, they are extremely difficult to find, but if you want a pug that much, then, you know, really search yeah. out the people that are trying to, are aware of this and are trying to solve the problem.
1: Or go to an adoption centre because they are going to be full of them. <laughs> if you want yeah. a pug, you're not going to have any problems the finding risks. one. Yeah, but you've got to, you know, I. I, I wouldn't want anyone, I, I, I couldn't, at the moment, I think unless people are outcrossing, you're not going to find a truly healthy
0: Brackish Valley. Oh, that's that's dog. what I meant, people that are
1: outcrossing. Um, yeah, people, but, you know, I think if we're all often behind Northern Europe, but I think if people, if other breed clubs start accepting that that's okay, hopefully that will just start to spread like wildfire. It's like, okay, so for five years, say, we're going to outcross to you know, pick one, Jack Russell's. They're not without their problems, but they're pretty robust little dogs that have got appreciable muzzles. So pick another small dog. Let's, you know, do something about it. And it is going to be a bit of a lottery to start with. Well,
0: because- I think that the, the tide is turning as well because, I mean, Jack Russell was an interesting example because they were recently, um, they, they recently were accepted in as and became an official breed, weren't they? And And the mm. people that were, breeding them actually a lot of them didn't want to become part of the kennel club because, yeah. because of all the issues that you just spoke about so it does seem yeah. like there's a kind of consciousness and the kennel club isn't as prestigious as maybe it once was
1: yeah and maybe people will just take things into their own hands i hope so i don't know what else to do i've been banging my head on a wall for 20 years and um <laughs> sometimes sometimes it gets a bit demoralizing um well, hopefully, but the, the people is, that
0: that listen to this and and agree and are on your side will, um, you know, purchase your book and, and support the work you do. Go and sign the register and, mm. and all of that good stuff. Because that's where I was going with it. So I wonder where can people find out more about you and, and the work that you're putting in now.
1: Um, well, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. So um, and I work with quite a few charities. So it's quite a nice place for people to see. The, the sort of you know the charities that i support and the work they do um which are usually things like um international cat care and the rabbit welfare association that are really good ethics and science-based things um so social mo- media i have got a website my own website which i virtually never update so i <laughs> i wouldn't plug that but um the brachycephalic stuff the homepage of the vets against brachycephalism explains why we feel the way we do it's not just um you know we're not just making it up as we go along um but yeah probably facebook's the easiest and, and twitter are the easiest ways to keep up with what i'm doing um and all the books the kids books which i love the pet detective series they're called they're all on amazon Um, and a lot of those touch on the the health stuff because they're all based around the five welfare needs so anyone being pestered they can do their trial month Um, but yeah I just
0: and picking uh, a pedigree they can get that on Amazon as well did you say?
1: Yeah and um, 5M um, it's just being translated, I've met a Korean student actually who said "Oh, all these problems are just starting in Asia Um, so I feel like hopefully we can maybe make a difference. To other countries before it gets to the stage we're at. And the book hopefully is going to get translated into Korean soon, so that would be great if we can start to reach some of those emerging sort of markets. But um, we'll see. The thing is, I was going to say, you know, I do get demoralised sometimes. But someone came up to me and said I was when I spoke at a nursing conference, and she said I was going to get a pug, but I'm not going to now. And I came home and I said to my husband, "Look, if it's one person at a time, that's you, you carry on, don't you? I'm not going to change the world, but if you change one person's mind, then that's still something."
0: Well, hopefully, this reaches a lot of people and uh, and we can change the minds today. So, yeah, thanks so much Together, for kind of yeah. sharing your uh, sharing your message and your story and your knowledge. Uh,
1: well, but... thank you as well because it's re- the more people like you who are interested and can reach you know a different audience i really appreciate it it's really kind
0: well thanks so much for coming on
1: no worries thank you for having me
0: i hope you enjoyed listening to that podcast as much as i did recording it don't forget you can grab all the show notes which is where I've included some of the recommended sources of information that Emma gave me, as well as links to her books and all of the stuff that she does. And you can find that over at nickbenger.com slash Emma hyphen Milne. Also, don't forget to join us on the podcast discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group and put in a request to join. That's where we talk about the podcast and all of the discussion goes on. So join us over there. Thanks for listening.